1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Corinthian church, the operations of the gift of the Spirit, doing things decently and in order, the preeminency of love. And this morning, we're going to see why all those things are important. Why have things set in order? Why come to church? What are they gathering for? Why is it that the person isn't going to be getting all of the accolades when it comes to the operations of gifts? Why they can't overrule each other and have all this chaos? And we're going to see Paul take these things and show us what is the most important thing as we spend the next few weeks in chapter 15. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to find out in verses 1 and 2. Lord, we thank you so much for your work, and we pray this morning that we would be growing closer and closer to you, Lord, conformed more important to your image. And that this morning, as you share from this text, Lord, that you would write these things on the tablets of our heart, help us to have a deeper understanding of you, and that you would use us to share your gospel to the whole world in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's work, look at the first two verses, chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel. The word gospel in Kone Greek, or the phrase gospel, it means good news, but it means any good news. You know, you got to raise at home, you would come home, you say, hey, I got gospel, I got good news. But the gospel is the greatest news of all creation and of all time. That is that Jesus Christ, God came into the flesh, manifested himself as Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless and perfect life. He was crucified on a cross for our sins. He died and he rose again physically. And then he ascended into heaven and in a likewise manner he shall return. And all who believe on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel. My, my son the other day had on a, a band and on it had a little bit of hieroglyphics on there. I go, well, what, what is that? And it's an arrow coming down, and then there's a cross, and there's a little tomb thing, and then an arrow that goes up, and then an, and it's like, what does that mean? And he goes through it, and he gives me the gospel message, just like I told you. Oh, the arrow comes down. God came down into flesh, and then he was on the cross, and then he rose again. And when we hear something like that, sometimes it, it loses its weight. We don't quite comprehend the depth of this statement. And I, I am not, by any means, am I looking down on a simple childlike faith. Because Jesus tells us to have childlike faith. But what I am saying is that many times when we quote-unquote share the gospel, or we talk about our salvation, we talk about the resurrection, we're not really teaching anything that's worth following. It's just another story. I mean, let's look at these verses, just the first two. He says, I declare to you the gospel. That is the centerpiece. That is why we are gathered together in church, which I preached to you. So he's taught this message. And they received it. You received. In which you stand. We stand in the gospel. We withstand the enemy. We withstand the world. We're not conformed to the world because we stand firmly rooted in the gospel message in which you are saved by faith alone in Christ alone through his glorious work and his resurrection, we are saved. 
as we stand in the gospel which we heard and is preached and that we have to hold fast. Paul's saying they are, hol- they are holding fast to that word, that message. And then this part's kind of scary, unless you believed in vain. All of that is in these first two verses. The whole purpose of coming together in church is so that we can follow our resurrected Lord. He is alive. He is not dead. This is not a mythology. This is not some fancy story. This is not a good teacher, especially today, because we have just as much mythology today on television as they did uh, being told by stories. I mean, look, there's constant uh, shows out there about zombies and corpses. We, we have a holiday coming up where our little kids are going to dress up as good. Well, maybe yours, but not mine. <laughs> Dressed up as ghosts and skeletons and witches and all kinds of nonsense and demonic things. Because, ah, you know, it's just make-believe. It's just stories. It's just getting candy, you know. And we get desensitized to it. So that when we hear, oh, yeah, Jesus died and he rose again, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. The Greeks had similar stories. They had stories of so-called gods. Uh, one of them had wings of wax. He flew up into the sky, got too close to the sun, it melted, and he fell. They had just as many stories there. But Paul has a unique message, and the Corinthians have heard it. They've received it. They stand in it, and they're saved by it. Today, we're going to teach... And the first section here in chapter 15 about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we plumb the depths, we begin to see what this really means. We will see how it radically transforms our lives. We're going to see three defenses here in verses 1 through 19 for the resurrection. Now, why was that important? Because in Greece, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in coming back from the dead. They just thought that was all nonsense. Now, the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Christ. So what was the problem? They didn't believe they would be resurrected. They didn't think that they would come back to life. And Paul's going to address that all through this chapter. When Paul taught this to the Greeks in Athens on Mars Hill, they laughed at him the second he started talking about resurrection. In Acts 17, 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. This matter is so crazy. This is so ludicrous. Even if we are listening to you, you got to have a whole other day to talk about this resurrection. It's so crazy. This is just so out of the world. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. doesn't happen. It's interesting to me that it's the first century and the Corinthians already need to make a defense for the resurrection. And we're going to talk about that as we continue. But we're also seeing there's nothing new under the sun. We are going to continue to make a defense of the gospel and the resurrection. It's not because it's two millennia later. We all have to make a defense of the hope that is within us. And Paul is going to give us those defenses, and they're not something that would be used in the future. They were used in that day to the Corinthians. And so we're not alone. The first defense of the gospel is found here in the first two verses, the testimony of the Corinthians themselves. They received this gospel, and it changed their lives. They knew that they were saved from from damnation. They had transformed lives. They're standing in that gospel message. They have received it. And our testimony should be the first defense of the gospel. But let's say you're a non-believer here or you're watching online and you're like, this is, 
just another good story. You're going to have a lot of explaining to do to get me on board. Well, let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what this resurrected life is all about and how important it really is. So let's read verses 3 through 8 now for our second and third defense. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Resurrection defense number two is found in verses three and four that it was written and foreordained and it was prophesied in the scriptures. So they don't have the New Testament. We know the New Testament uh, doctrine. We, we know that it speaks and it records Jesus's resurrection. But when it says the Corinthians were learning in the scriptures, they were talking about the Old Testament. They were looking at the Old Testament scriptures and saying, man, all of this is speaking about Jesus. All of this is speaking about the Messiah coming and his resurrection. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, just prove it. How about Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Psalm 2, verse 7, over and over and over again, speaking about the Messiah and what he was going to do. And they could look at those scriptures. The conviction for us is, do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? I, I recently heard of, um, read, I read an article about a pastor who said he doesn't, doesn't need to be in the Old Testament. He wants to stick to the New Testament. Well, the first century church didn't know nothing about that. That's all they had was the Old Testament, and they preached Christ crucified. And then they had the writings of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine as they were coming through. And we have that collection as the New Testament. Jesus taught the very same thing. You see, when he confronted the Pharisees who were studying and memorizing the Old Testament scriptures, they were attacking him, trying to stomp him, stamp him out. There's no way he can be the Messiah. The Messiah that, that's not the Messiah they wanted. But Jesus speaks back to them. And in John chapter 5, verse 38, He's speaking to them when he says, but, do you, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. He's speaking of himself, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. you. You search the scriptures and they speak of me, but you don't have eternal life. This is a, this is a radical statement, but the Bible doesn't save anyone. The, the word of God doesn't save anyone. Christ saves through his glorious resurrection and it's faith in Christ alone that saves. You can be saved without ever seeing a Bible. You can be illiterate. And be saved because it's faith alone in Christ alone. Now, if you want to know the Lord, he is the word of God. He is revealed in the pages of scripture to us. In Hebrews chapter one, verse two says there's no more. We don't use prophets anymore. We have the word of God, the revelation of Christ himself. But we need to realize the power of the resurrection in which Paul is writing right now. 
First, first we have the personal testimony of the Corinthians. Second, we have the scriptures, that, scriptures themselves that have prophesied and shown that this was to be the case. And then third, you have a long list of eyewitness accounts. When Paul is writing these names down, these people are walking around. They're alive. You can fact check them. Uh, James, half-brother of Jesus, it says here that you saw the resurrection. Is that true? You're darn right. I didn't even believe he was the Messiah. I thought he was just a really good boy, goody two-shoes. I knew he loved God and stuff like that, but, man, when he started walking around after he died, I knew he was Lord. That's an eyewitness account. Over 500 people. I think it's interesting, interesting to me, that Bible critics will be like, well, it can't be true. They, they all saw they all were hypnotized. They all had a vision. How? What? Oh, no, no, no. They wanted, they just made it up later on. This, could, this couldn't possibly be true. Let's remove the Lord from this and see where this works in any other situation. You have a murderer who's on trial. And they bring in not one, not two, not three, not four, but 500 witnesses. Four or five, they do by name. The rest of them saw it in broad daylight. It's recorded. They all see it. The defense attorney for the murderer says, yeah, but they just want him to be convicted. They want him to be the murderer. They're all making it up. It's not real. We can't trust their witnesses. We can't trust any of these witnesses because that was like two weeks ago. How could they possibly remember all these things? Even though all these witnesses have varying viewpoints, they give differing details, and they all line up, no, 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 it's just it's too long ago. We can't trust them. They want him to be convicted. So the judge obviously just throws out the charges because, you know, how can we trust so many witnesses? Even though these historically proven individuals through archaeological, historic, manuscript evidence all went to their deaths confessing that something so radical happened that they were willing to be tortured without denying it. All they had to do was say, no, no, it's not real. It didn't happen, and they would have been let go. And none of them did. When they were apart from each other, in different parts of the globe, at different times, something so radical happened that their lives were never the same, ever. It's almost like a person came back from the dead. It's almost like a miracle took place. And yet, the, the scoffer, oh, yeah, well, we just can't trust him. We, we just can't trust that. Now, remember, Paul's making a defense for the resurrection here in the first century. There's nothing new under this the sun. We should also likewise understand the defense. But we need to know this is the cornerstone of our very foundation. Why even come here if these things are not true? There are too many churches today. They don't teach about the resurrection. They don't teach about the cross. They don't teach about sin. They don't teach about being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't talk about hell. What is the point? Just go ahead and put the Starbucks label on the front, get rid of the cross, and go all the way. The purpose of the Corinthians gathering there together was to live resurrected lives following a living Lord. Not some good teacher of mythology. They had plenty of mythology around. They had plenty of false gods. But something was different. Finally, Paul here is going to speak about himself. 
the guy who's writing these pages, the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. He says he is also a witness. And so let's read verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, Paul did not create the gospel. He says, I received. I preached the gospel that I received. He was a partaker. That means he was a born again believer. He wasn't always that way. But he is very clear that he received this gospel from Jesus himself. In Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice this word gospel, this good news, the gospel, this message has so radically transformed this man that he is penning this scripture. Now, again, we look at this, you know, kind of like we do with the gospel itself. Oh, yeah, Jesus died. He rose again for our sins. Believe in him and you shall be saved. It's like, oh, yeah, I get it. Uh-huh. Nice. Okay. Oh, yeah, Paul, he's a believer. He ran this race. You know, he, he, he labored more than everyone else. Of course he did. He's Paul, the apostle. No, 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 no. You don't know who we're talking about here. We are talking about Saul of Tarsus, a destroyer of Christians, a wrecker of families. When he says here that he is laboring for God more abundantly, and he says, is God not me? He says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You say, well, yeah, you deserve it. You're Paul. No, this is Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 8 of the book of Acts, it's recorded that Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. we got to take this home. Man, imagine a man comes into your house. He grabs your wife by the hair. He drags her outside, kicking and screaming, takes her and throws her into a dungeon. The only thing that has to be done is that you and her have to recant the name of Jesus Christ but you won't do it. What would you feel for this man? And would your faith stand? But what happened in their lives that the name of Jesus Christ was so important you would allow this to happen, that you would not recant? Because either you or your friends or the people around you saw the resurrected Lord and you know that a fact it is true and that you can trust this carpenter from Nazareth that he woke around, walked around after he was dead. The things he taught were real. And Saul was the one who did that. I don't know if I have enough faith. That only have to be the Holy Spirit. I imagine Satan in Paul's life magnifying the voices, hearing the screams of the mothers, of the fathers, separating them from their children, separating them little Sons and little daughters seeing this man ripping these families apart, throwing them in dungeons. You know, we don't really think, well, yeah, he's Paul the Apostle. He's so magnificent. I see Satan haunting Saul. And I think that when Satan was hauling, he didn't call him Paul. He called him Saul. He said, Saul, how dare you teach the God? Are you planning a church? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you did? 
Don't you know what you did and you call yourself a Christian? You're not worthy. But, but what did Paul say back to him? In Galatians, Paul writes, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. For the Son of God came and died for me. That's what his response is. In fact, Saul is so incensed, he wants to destroy the Christian church. And we're not talking about arguing on Facebook, y'all. We're not talking about, oh, I didn't get promoted because I'm a Christian. We're talking about knocking the door down at your house, pulling you out, and throwing you in a dungeon. Some of you will die. Some of you will be tortured. And he is so incensed, he's willing to travel to get it done. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. That's not a philosophical, intellectual exercise. This isn't a feeling. He is doing it. Against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that is Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it's not for cake and crumpets. It's not for tea and coffee. And so he leaves. He gets the letters. He's on the way to Damascus. Men, women, kids, it doesn't matter. He's going to stamp this out. He's defending his culture. He's defending his history, his faith. And he's going to destroy all enemies against it. These brothers and sisters, these Christians in that time frame, they're being arrested, beaten, chased, tortured for one message that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who died and rose again for our sins, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that message is so powerful. Him walking around with their own eyes, they saw, is so radical, is so different, is so life-altering that they will endure. Not for a year, not for two, not for ten, for centuries. Thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of Christians will go to their deaths their final words being, Lord, save me, Lord, help. Knowing that the resurrection is a fact. And by Paul's own hand, he writes in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Torture, murder, imprisonment. And, I, and I've already shared with you, I believe my personal opinion. He hears their voices. They haunt him till his death. But then he, what's he writing? Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. But to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What did he write in Galatians? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he knows grace. Even though he's being called Saul by Satan, he's called Paul by Jesus. And he's able to reply back to the enemy. So this Saul of Tarsus, this evil man, it finally happens. What happens? He was sitting at home drinking a cup of tea and thought, I'm a really bad man. I should change my life. He's on the way to Damascus, breathing threats of murder, trying to stamp out the faith. And in chapter 9, verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? 
I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's kind of hard for the Calvinists to explain how you could kick against the goads when you have irresistible grace, but, you know, we'll talk about that in a second. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Ultimately, though, we do see in their defense, when you're in the presence of God, you don't say no. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing Lord. But it's not that black and white. You know, he is resisting the Holy Spirit. He's kicking against the goats. But what happens? Like I said, this wasn't some vague dream. This wasn't, hey, I had a feeling. This wasn't even a moment of conviction. He has a literal experience with the resurrected Lord Jesus. He's blinded by this glorious light. He falls from his donkey on his knees. And he knows immediately that it is God. Who are you, Lord? And there comes those words. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And in an instant, in an instant, in a moment, he goes from hearing the screams and the willing to inflict pain and hardship and destruction to what do you want me to do? Yes, Jesus, what do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And, he's, and the Lord tells him, I want you to go until I tell you what to do. Go to this place. And he does. That is what an interaction with the true and living, resurrected Lord is like. Not just some, oh yeah, Jesus, he died, he rose again for our sins, believe in him, you you won't perish, you'll you'll live forever. It is an interaction with the true and living Lord as he fills you with the Holy Spirit by faith alone. He seals you for salvation, changes you, and you are born again. You are a new creation in him by his work. That is the resurrection. That is the gospel. It's not a phantom here, not a dream, not make-believe, not a good story, not mythological, not some HBO series, Fox series, TV show, popular video game. These people are living this with their lives. They are bleeding it with their blood. They are speaking it with the air that comes from their lungs. Resurrected lives. You do not have an interaction with the true and living God and ever remain the same. And Jesus Christ forgave Saul of Tarsus by faith. And Saul was born again and became Paul and wrote these words here. I am not worthy to be called an apostle. That's not a metaphor. No, you are not. But, and because he persecuted the church of God, But verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what's written here. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I preach the gospel to you in which you stand, in which you receive, in which you are saved. But I don't want you to believe in vain. I've been saved by this gospel. I am a testimony of it. I received it from Jesus himself. Paul can say the resurrection is the real deal. And so later, Paul is able to write to Timothy his protege, the pastor he's discipling. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. No true words could be written. We are all saved sinners. This is the gospel. Faith in the living, resurrected Lord. 
so many witnesses. Witnesses upon witnesses and testimonies upon testimonies, eyewitnesses. In the, in the epistles, it says that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled the word of life. When they say they experienced Jesus, they're just not like, oh, I went to the amphitheater and I was in the 37th row and I was able to, the sound was pretty good that day. What we mean is he, they felt his beard against their cheek. They smelt him. They hugged him. They took food from his hands. They saw him die. It wasn't some TV special. They were there. And then they came back and they saw him walking around, going through walls. They saw miracle happen. And then they saw him go up into the clouds, ascend into heaven. And they saw the angels that said, why do you marvel at this? He's going to come back. And we are waiting for him to come back. The true and resurrected Lord is alive and he is living. He is no legend. He is a, a mind changing, life-altering Lord. And that is the gospel that we follow. And he is worthy. Starts with us, verses 1 and 2. It's ordained and prophesied in the scriptures, verses 3 and 4, and it has been sealed by eyewitnesses, many of them, not just in the Corinthians' day, but for century and for millennia of all the blood of every martyr that's ever confessed Jesus Christ as Lord to their dying death. And we're like, Lord, come entertain me on Sunday, please. I hope the coffee gets better. No, we follow the resurrected Lord. That's the reason the Corinthians are gathered there together. First and foremost, I want to preach the gospel, Paul says. This whole chapter is just about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we see that they're still having this conversation that we're having today. They had then. Nothing has changed. What is that conversation? Verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are all, you are still in your sins, verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. pitiable. So the conclusion is, why, why, if there's no resurrection, then what's the whole point? See, the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not the problem. They didn't think they would be resurrected. Because resurrection, that's just silly. Who, what? That's impossible. Exactly. That's the point. It's impossible. But it's, when we know that context and we see Paul saying, if if Jesus is not resurrected from the dead. That is the most sarcasm of all sarcasm. He literally saw him. He literally saw him, had an experience that completely radically transformed him. He's like, well, if it's not true, then what's the whole point? Y'all, if it's not true, then what's the point? Why, why are we here? Why am I teaching? Why are we following Christ at all if, it is not, if he is not the resurrected Lord? 
He is. And he is doing today what he did then. He is radically transforming people, saving them from not only death and hell, but we will all be resurrected and will live for a millennia on this planet in a perfect paradise and then from everlasting to everlasting forevermore in his presence. We are going to live forever because of Christ and his resurrection. That means that all those who do not follow our Lord Jesus Christ and have not accepted his resurrection shall perish, as it says in the book of Revelation, from everlasting to everlasting in a lake of fire called hell. I do not say that just nonchalantly. I I don't say that without understanding the weight of what I have said. That is why he sent his son, so that no one would have to go there. And there are people today that are like, yeah, but the, re- the resurrection, that's just a good story. He's just a good teacher. You know, when we die, we just go into the ground and we disappear. Then what is all this for? Then what's the point? That is what Paul is saying. There is, there is no greater message. This is the gospel that God came into the flesh. Fancy word alert. The hypostatic union. man, 100% God, God himself, his image, reflecting the Father, came and lived a sinless life, and then he died, and he rose again. But if we're all going to be resurrected, then what's the big deal? You know, other people were resurrected. Why don't we worship Lazarus? Lazarus came from the grave. That's kind of special. Because of what was done on the cross. It's not just the resurrection. The resurrection is for me and you, so that we can believe what was done. What was done? Remember how I said earlier that the volume of the book is speaking of Jesus Christ? Remember how I said the whole Old Testament, speaking of Jesus? Well, the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. And in in Psalm 75, verse 8, there's a hint. And we're going to look at a couple verses. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink it down. What is this cup? It's a cup of wrath. It is the wrath of God. No sin ever goes unpunished. He is a just and righteous God. We forget that. We we know he's a loving God. We teach that he's a loving God, a forgiving God, a merciful God. But today, there's so few people talking about his justice and his righteousness. In the book of Hebrews, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Well, you're like, well, you're just using one very off verse from Psalms. I mean, oh, I like this. I li- Let's see what the scripture says in Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out, the cup of his fury. What's so important about Jerusalem? Why are they drinking this thing? And you're like, Mike, these verses are just so vague. Like they could mean anything. Well, it's a good thing that the Lord continues to expound in his scripture. Let's look at another prophet, hundreds of years removed from these other verses. In Jeremiah 25, it says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send to you to drink it. Can you drink it? Can you drink the judgment that is against you for every sin you've committed? 
Can you drink the wrath of God? Are you able to stand in the presence of a perfect, holy, righteous judge and make atonement for every mistake you have ever made? In the Bible, it says that you even know to do a good deed and you do not do it. It is a sin. How could you stand before a righteous God? Jesus, the Messiah, knew this. And before his resurrection, he goes to the Mount of Olives. And he also talks about a cup, the same cup. And in verse 39 of chapter 22, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was the cup of the judgment of mankind. And he drank it for us on the cross. This is so, this, this moment, this understanding is so powerful that the Messiah, God in the flesh, is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood and receives angelic help. Then an angel from heaven, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And then be, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down from the ground. And when he rose from prayer and came to his, come, had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. We criticize the disciples, but I want to point out, they don't have any work to do. This is Christ's time. He takes the cup of damnation that is on you and I, and he drinks it on that crucifix. And the Bible tells us that the Father turned his face away, and the wrath of God was poured out on him. And we don't understand what that truly means. And then he gave up the ghost. He didn't, they didn't kill him. He gave up his life. Our victorious Lord took the judgment of God and he rose from the grave to show us all that this is legit. And that is so powerful of a message that his disciples, many of them will die, torturous death. Many of them will lose their homes. They'll lose their families. They'll lose their, their, their careers, their jobs, their 401ks. But this resurrected Lord is so powerful they don't care. They're just trying to live their lives, but they'll spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, sharing the gospel. We saw the resurrected Lord. My neighbor saw him. I didn't see him, but man, my neighbor was like this, and then he changed. And then Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he's trying to stamp them out. But then he has an experience with the Lord, and he begins to preach and teach and plant churches, saying here, I labor more than you all because by the grace of God I am what I am. And what is the point if we're not gathered, sharing the gospel with the world and living resurrected lives, following our resurrected Lord? Confirmed and proven and tested. And yet some person comes along and says, you know, the resurrection, that's just silly. You know, Jesus was just a good person. You tell that to two millennia of millions of people giving their lives, confessing that Christ is the Lord. You tell that to the eyewitnesses. You tell that to the historical data, the archaeological evidence, the extra-biblical writings confirming that these people lived and that they gave their lives and they sacrificed themselves. And you tell me all, it's just nice story. We're smarter than that now. 
Well, there's, that's what they're going through. And, and that's what's so crazy to me is Paul, when he's writing this, he may in the one moment be tempted by Satan and hear the screams of those that he tortured, but then the next he can remember what it felt like to see the resurrected Lord. It's kind of not biblically accurate, though, because he couldn't see nothing, could he? He was blinded. But he heard the resurrected Lord, and he fellowshiped with believers. He experienced that Jesus is not dead. He's alive today. Where two or three are gathered, he is in the midst. He sits on the right hand of the Father on high. He's coming back for his church, and we can, to our dying breath, I pray, live long, easy, non-persecuted lives for Christ. But if they're short, And terrible, with joy from our lips, we can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I trust in the resurrected Lord. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, his farewell letter. To his pastor trainee, he writes, but as now, has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel the gospel abolish death through the gospel jesus christ took the cup of wrath upon himself from the cross he rose again from the grave ascended into heaven and likewise will return and we are all saved through him and we can say what the corinthians said we receive the gospel in which we stand against the world and we follow this gospel unless our faith be in vain you see demons believe They know the scripture. Satan knows who Christ is. But are we born again believers in the resurrected Lord? Are we Christ followers? The Bible won't save you. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can save you. And it's by faith alone in Christ alone. That is a message worth sharing with the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would live resurrected lives, that we would connect our faith with the true and living Lord, you. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would gather together to learn more about you every every day and every week, every Lord's Day. Lord, we just want to live lives for you. We thank you for the witnesses, for your scripture. We thank you for their testimonies, our testimonies, Lord. And pray that you would continue to be magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, come on up. We want to pray with you. We've got some gifts for you. If you have prayers, you want to share a story to share, come on up. We'll pray with you. God bless you and have a wonderful week. Remember, this Saturday is our Thanksgiving fellowship. It just snuck up on us. We only got a week, so get the app. Get your signature on there. It's one of our uh, most fun times. God bless you.